Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to pick up at verse 20. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother's brother Absalom's house. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear. Have not I myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Now it was while they were on their way that the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose, tore his clothes and lay on the ground and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, responded, Do not let my lord suppose that they have put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. Because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, do not let my lord the king take the report to heart, namely all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Now Absalom had fled, And the young man, who was the watchman, raised his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road beside him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, according to your servant's word, so it happened. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept, and also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur, And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. And the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're following up in the second half of the chapter where um, after the events that were that um, the events that took place, the terrible, tragic, violent uh, events that took place between Amnon and Tamar, 
Um, Tamar, you remember, is Absalom's sister, right? Um, they, they all have David as a father, right? Different mothers involved here. So Tamar is Absalom's sister, and, and Amnon is, is a half-brother to Tamar. After Tamar tears her clothes, Absalom enters and gives his counsel. Right? So you remember at the end of the, the last section, Tamar is grieving her corruption. And she tears her clothes, the clothes of a virgin, and mourns. Uh, she put ashes on her head, tore long sleeve garments, and she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went, mourning her corruption. And then Absalom appears, right? Absalom, her brother, says this, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? And that's a legitimate question. Um, he's finding out the facts. He, But then his his counsel to her is wicked. Be silent, right? He's your brother. Do not take counsel, do not take this matter to heart. She's obviously already taken it to heart. She's grieving. She's, she's put ashes on her head. She's tore her garments. This is taking something to heart and, and mourning and wearing her heart on her sleeves, so to be um, so to speak, and so now, now Absalom comes along and says, "Be silent. Be silent about what? Be silent about rape. Be silent about incest. Be silent about the king's son raping the king's daughter. About a brother. About sexual deviance. Um, the answer is no. Don't be silent. The answer is go to the authority." who will punish Amnon for his sin. Tell legitimate authority. Um, either ecclesiastical, go to the priests, or go to the state. And so, um, <clears throat> when people confess being sinned against in certain ways that are crimes, right? we are obligated in some situations to report. You know that. Right? We are obligated as elders and pastors and just as Christians to report these things to the authorities. Other times when someone confesses something that is a crime to us, we as elders might urge them to self-report. You've committed a crime. You need to confess this sin to the authorities and take it before those who may punish you very severely but you have committed crimes. The state still does punish evildoers, right? That is part of their purpose. That is part of their God-ordained authority is to punish evildoers as God's minister. The police are God's minister. And, and so Absalom here is telling, telling her to be silent. Now, there may be other reasons why he's telling her to be silent other I mean, obviously, other than um, trying to cover up a crime committed or trying not to deal with his sister's pain, it may be that he's simply plotting vengeance. 
And he wants to take matters into his own hand. And for anybody else to punish Amnon would be to take away his delight in punishing Amnon for uh, having raped his sister. And then he says, he is your brother. Again, that's the words of a cover-up. He's your brother. This is so common, brothers and sisters, when you're dealing with sexual sins in families. For the family to rally around one another and protect one another, even though the sins have been committed against one another and the crimes have been committed against one another. He's your brother, right? I've had, I've had terrible sins that I've had to deal with as a pastor. And I've heard words just like this. He's our son. Right? Something along those lines. And where, where they say, you no longer have authority here. And you can't go to the police because you're going to destroy our family. Right? He's our son. He's our brother. He's my brother. Those sorts of things. And this is all too common that uh, families will rally around one another and don't want, don't, want, um, don't want justice, but don't want proper care for Tamar. Right? Right? They won't care for her and think that you know, Tamar would be helped by seeing Amnon punished for his sins. That helps her to heal. That helps her to see that she has been a victim of of sin and crimes against her. And so this is all too common. We see what Absalom does here. He's your brother. And then he says further, do not take this matter to heart. She's been corrupted. She's lost her purity, which she had guarded up to that point. And she is now a despoiled flower. How could she not take this to heart? How could she not, as the king's daughter in his household, not take this to heart? It is a terrible counsel, right? Absalom is being a terrible brother, just as Amnon was, um, but on a Uh, in a different way, right? They're both being terrible brothers to Tamar. And then it says this. So so his counsel is terrible. It's common counsel. It's not godly counsel. It's not counsel that comes out of the Word of God. It's not counsel that, that, that shoots for justice and for righteousness. It's counsel. Uh, it's wicked counsel. And then it says, So Tamar remained and was desolate, in her brother Absalom's house, right? What does, it mean to, what does it mean that she was desolate? Well, desolate means you're joyless. It means you're disconsolate. You can't be, you can't be um, comforted, right? She's desolate. She's, um, and, and that is, brothers and sisters, the result of sexual corruption, Desolate, dis, disconsolate, right? Joyless. And so, though Tamar's corruption came by force against her will, so many find themselves desolate. Think of this. 
This was forced upon her. Right? So many find themselves desolate because they willingly corrupt themselves, give themselves over to sexual sin. Right? And the result of that is the same desolation. Right? The same desolation, the same corruption. They willingly corrupt themselves by sex outside of marriage or by digital adultery. Right? And the result is, is desolation, empty dissatisfaction with all those things. And so, um, whether, whether, it's, whether you're a victim or whether you have despoiled yourself, the end result is desolation. Now, the next, the next matter in verse 21, most of my comments in this passage have to do with these first couple of verses. They're very dense. King David hears of all of, all of this stuff that's gone on. Right? He hears of this corruption that's going on in his own household. He hears of it. He hears about Amnon, his son. He hears... Uh, about Tamar, he's contemplating these things. And, and it just says this, now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. Period, full stop, move on to the next verse. Right? He, was, he was very angry. Right? It doesn't say, when, when King David heard of these matters, he was very angry and he pursued his son Amnon. It just says he's very angry, right? And man, this is a plague that's, that men deal with. Men think that, that the anger of man does accomplish the will of God, right? Men think that they're being righteous when they're just angry about something, right? And we can get very angry, right? You, this is the pathetic side of masculinity. And all of you sisters here know about that pathetic side of mas- masculinity that has plagued men since Adam. Angered, anger followed by an inability or unwillingness to act. Just anger. Ah, throw something around, get angry at the sin in your household, and then go sit in the garage. Right? I just need some space. I just need time alone. And you don't deal with the sin in your own household. This is David here. We know that David has had difficulty. Um, he's had difficulty disciplining his own children. Right? And here now, when the most terrible sins that we can imagine, incest and rape, happen in his household, he, he flares up. Anger followed by inability. Anger followed by in, an unwillingness to act. How many times have you seen your husband or your dad or some other man fly into a rage about so-and-so and this principle of his and, and, you know, and how he's going to confront you know, his, his boss's sinful leadership and then you learn that he said nothing. And all he did was, was vent his anger, and then he was impotent. This is man's sin. Anger, then inaction. 
right? Rather, anger, which is um, in this situation for David, was justified. Rightly, he should be angry at the sin in his own household. He should be, um, but it should lead, rather, anger should be followed by godly action, right? To warn, to rebuke, to intercede, to seek justice, to protect victims, to um, to right what's wrong, to do all those things, that's masculinity. That's godly masculinity. Masculinity that is not godly, right, is, is, a, is, uh, is trouble. Because it's corrupt, it's fallen, right? It's good to be a godly man, right? And so, we, we see in King David here just the blustering sort of masculinity. King David should have marched into Amnon's house and handed him over to the authorities, whatever that means in that day and age, right? He should have marched over to Amnon and, and made things right. He would have, but, but no, he was just angry. And it's just a waste of anger. It's a waste of energy, right? If your anger doesn't lead to what's, what's good, then it's, it's just ungodly anger, right? But there is an anger that doesn't lead to sin. There's an anger against sin, that when rightly put into action is good. Sometimes anger is good because it awakens us to our responsibility. But sometimes we just think we use anger as a shroud that we hide behind, right? Right, men? We just bluster in our homes and think, okay, I've shown my passion. And my wife should be satisfied, even though I intend fully to neglect the issue that we were just discussing. Sometimes we use our anger as that covering. We know we'll do nothing about the issue, but we'll bluster and bluster like we are, never intending to do anything. Man, don't waste your anger. Don't waste your anger. Don't think anger is enough. Often your anger indicates an obligation. Often your, your anger, I mean it always will indicate an obligation in order to, um, if, your anger is, if your anger is against sin, if your anger is against injustice. And, those, uh, and so men, repent of this, this sort of masculinity. Masculinity is very good at blustering, but can be very weak. Very weak. This is, um, would that Adam, as he contemplated his wife's interactions with Satan in the garden, would have gotten angry? And would have then felt an obligation to intercede and correct what was being corrupted? So after this, we find that Absalom is scheming. Absalom is scheming, he's waiting, he's inwardly festering, deepening in bitterness toward his brother. Absalom did not speak to Amnon either good or bad. He just stood aloof. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. He hates Amnon. Again, there's, there's a lesson to learn in anger here. He hates Amnon. He, he does not want to see Amnon repent. He does not want to see any good come from 
um, this. He does not want to see him turn away from his sin, but he just wants to see him dead, punished ultimately for his sin. Right, And so Absalom begins to plot, and we read about that in 23 and onward. Now it came about after two full years, so two full years Absalom is just not saying anything good or bad, sort of just um, fattening up Amnon for the slaughter. And he uses the, the sheep shearing as an event to bring together his, the king's sons. And Absalom invited all the king's sons, knowing that Amnon would be there. And so we read about what happens here. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, and the king, David, and Absalom go back and forth. And David eventually gives, after, after Absalom doesn't back off, then David finally gives consent that, that Amnon and all the king's sons can go with Absalom. Right? Remember, David knows about, remember, David got really angry. He knows about Absalom and Amnon and Tamar. And, and yet he allows the king's sons to go with Absalom. And Absalom has it all together. He commands his servants. Remember, Absalom is also going to t- try to take over the kingdom of his father. He is going to try to draw people after him. He's already getting an entourage around him. He's, he's taking the hearts of the men away from King David and drawing them to himself. And so he already has servants that he can command to even do uh, murder, just like his father David, who had Joah, uh, who had, okay, it's, it's I'm, I'm blanking on uh, David's henchman. Um, Joab, wait. Somebody help me. Joab. Yeah, Joab. Thank you. Um, and so, so all of this happens. He, um, Absalom asks for, this, uh, for the presence of the king's sons. He consents. Seems like this is another failure. He knew of the things that were going on. And then Absalom's servants kill Amnon after he is drunk. Right? Again, there are a lot of parallels here between what David did with Uriah and what his sons are now doing. And we know that the punishment of the discipline that God is bringing upon David and the consequences of his sin were that the sword would not leave his own household. So we see that being enacted. It's reported to David that all the king's sons have been killed. All of them have been killed. And David's response is torn clothes. He lays on the ground. He has his servants lay upon the ground, tears his clothes. And then he learns that it's only Amnon from whom? He learns that it's only Amnon from Jonadab. Remember who Jonadab is. Jonadab is the dude, the cousin of Amnon, right, who helps Amnon plot against Tamar. And so that's who he learns it from. The guy who coached Amnon to take Tamar is still around in the king's household. And he's the one who counsels, uh, lets David know. 
And then Absalom flees, and the king's sons return, and they all weep very bitterly. And look where Absalom goes. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. Absalom flees and goes to live among the Gentiles. There are no cities of refuge for premeditated murderers. Right? What are the cities of refuge for in Israel? The cities of refuge are for those who commit manslaughter or those who um, it's not premeditated murder. It's not first-degree murder, what we would call. There's no, no refuge for Absalom. And so he goes and lives outside of Israel with the Gentiles. And then the final thing in this passage, that last verse, the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was, cons- he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. Now that reads strangely to our ears, right? He's comforted concerning Amnon because he's dead. That seems like a strange thing to say. Um, <clears throat> but there are two things that are, that are troubling here. Why, why is he longing to be with murderer Absalom? Why is he longing to be there? And why is he comforted by the death of Amnon? Well, Amnon couldn't be brought back from the grave, but perhaps Absalom could return from exile. Right? I think that's what the last phrase means. He's comforted concerning Amnon. There's nothing more that can be done. He's dead. He's in the grave. Right? And there's some question about the Hebrew here. It could be that this is translated... Um, so Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years, and this held King David back from going out to Absalom. So it's the very opposite of what we read here. There's just difficulty in the Hebrew here. And so it could mean, I mean, it's, it's similar in the sense that the heart of David is still longing to go to Absalom, but because he's among the Gentiles, he's, he can't. He can't go um, to get Absalom. Well, here's what Matthew Henry says in response to David's longing to go out to Absalom. He says, instead of loathing Absalom as a murderer, David, after a time, longed to go forth to him. This was David's infirmity. God saw something in his heart that made a difference, else we should have thought that he, as much as Eli, honored his sons more than God. Right? Remember, Scripture says that he's a man after God's heart. And so, um, what Henry is bringing out here is that it seems that he is honoring his sons above God and his word and what's right. And indeed, it does seem that David is making that um, mistake, that sin, right? Um, in 2 Samuel fourteen twenty-eight, we realize something again about David here. So Absalom does return to Jerusalem, but does not see the king. Once he returns to Jerusalem, does not see the king's face for two years. Right? So David again is, one, if his heart is longing to see Absalom, it's very strange, but then when he comes back, David lets him alone for two full years. Is this 
the silent treatment or what's going on here, I'm not sure. But again, we see, we see David's difficulty in being a father, right? And lest we get puffed up with pride, let's remember how difficult it is to be parents, how difficult it is to be a father or a mother, right? It is, it is the most humbling action. I feel my inadequacies every day when it comes to fatherhood and, and parenting, right? And I see these same sins, the, the blustering anger with no follow-up, the, the, the manipulative sort of silent treatment of the children I'm not happy with. All these ways where I'm not being a good father, where I'm not pursuing the, the right thing, I'm not communicating, I'm just being aloof. And so David stands for us as all of the Old Testament saints and sinners do as an example. As an example of, of what to avoid and what um, the consequences of unfaithfulness when it comes to fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and fathers and daughters, etc. So, a little bit of review of the applications here. Absalom's counsel is bad. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. That's our calling as Christians, is to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. But, but Absalom covers them so that he can later take his own vengeance. That is terrible wickedness. Corruption. Sexual corruption equals desolation. And desolation, we know, which we know that God can redeem. God can make all things new. God can purify things that have become corrupted. And we praise God for His graciousness in that, that He does not forsake us when we are corrupted, when we have corrupted ourselves, but that He makes all things new and He puts His Spirit within us so that we may put to death the deeds of the flesh. And, and so there is hope. There is hope for those of us who have been corrupted, which is all of us. And then... Brothers, avoid impotent anger. Impotent anger. Let your anger have a good result, which is calm interaction with the actual problem. Right? Your anger, your anger quickly pivots. It pr- quickly pivots between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And often, unrighteous anger will we'll try to take vengeance and take matters into our own hand. But anger towards sin in our household is much better than never, raise, never being angry about anything in order just to keep the peace in our household. There should be anger toward sin. We can be angry and not sin when our anger is righteous in the Lord. But then... It becomes unrighteous if it doesn't have good fruit following it. And so, repent of that impotent anger. Repent of that, uh, that passive-aggressive anger. And that's not just for brothers here. That's also for the, 
um, the women as well. The, the anger we have, the blustering that we give, the venting that comes forth is often very, very poor and uh, sinful in itself. But let it produce good things. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your mercy toward us. We thank You for Your power in our lives. We thank You that You make things new and that You redeem things that have been corrupted. And Father, I pray that we would be righteous in our anger and that we would not use anger as just a smoke screen, as a shroud, as, a, as, a, as, a, um, as an action that justifies our subsequent inaction. So Father, I pray that we would be, be circumspect when we are angry and that we would even think about why it is that we're angry, if it's justified, but then also if it is what to do. Uh, Father, I pray that we would not stop like David did and allow his household to be further corrupted as he just sat back and observed. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts of love that are engaged. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.